Welcome to Screw the Hierarchy, episode 83. In this episode, I'm talking about what we can learn from the evolution of sexual harassment law to address the power structures that benefit white men. Are you ready to hear what I have to say? More after this. If you're a target of workplace abuse and want to break free of the grips of abusive power, you've found your place. I'm your host, Deb Falzoy, and the podcast begins now. So we know that sexual harassment law has advanced workers' rights or workers' rights for women. But what has it really done and not done to move the needle for women? And how is it enabling those writing the rules to keep themselves in power to cling on to the status quo? I want to look to Yale Law School's Reva B. Siegel and her short history of sexual harassment from her 2000 book, Directions in Sexual Harassment Law, to get a sense of what work was like before the Supreme Court interpreted Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to include sexual harassment as discrimination based on sex in the late 1980s. With each step, we'll look at how the history gives us insights for the need for general workplace anti-abuse legislation, or the Dignity at Work Act, because we know that workplace abuse has a discriminatory impact on women, non-white workers, and low-wage workers. So the Supreme Court's interpretation of sexual harassment as discrimination based on sex marked the first time women could fight a centuries-old practice through law. And Siegel defines sexual harassment as unwanted sexual relations imposed by superiors on subordinates at work. This practice has U.S. roots in slavery. African-American women had no protections under law before the abolition of slavery in 1865. So if we look at, at this on a spectrum, we'll look at it as control on one end and freedom on the other. Free women working in domestic service, manufacturing, and clerical positions also faced or often faced sexual advances by men in their workplaces, ranging from assault to unwanted advances. And they're obviously more towards freedom um, than control in the spectrum than African-American women who were fully controlled by their owners through slavery. Um, and public sentiment since the anti-slavery movement went in one of two directions. So the first is that some believed that they, or they blamed women themselves because they were stereotyped as promiscuous by nature. Rape was punishable, punishable by law for free women, but the definition of rape required consistent physical resistance to not be considered consensual. So most free women had little reason to expect consequences for offenders and only consequences for themselves for speaking up, which included damage to their reputation or damage to their prospects for marriage. Common law eventually helped, but only in terms of inflicting damage on a man's property. So a man could sue another man who raped his slave or an employer who impregnated his daughter. And then on the, in the other direction, others condemned men for sexually abusing the women who worked for them with slavery, particularly in the abolitionist press and domestic service. Household service and degrada degradation to women actually became synonymous. Some considered factories in the garment industry and meatpacking industry to operate on wage slavery, which was basically exhausting labor and restricting freedom and leaving women on the verge of starvation and dependent on the, on the whim of men. 
The sexual injury of women meant their devaluation and objectification as servants to men, but changes in the law meant an, an economic loss to men. So if we just stop here and look at the takeaway for, for the Dignity at Work Act, we can see that stereotypes and weak laws are tools to keep those who write the rules in power, but our social rules can change when a group of people begin to speak up. So then let's look, look at the, um, look at how people started to question the dependence on men. And that even involved the practice of marriage. So women's susceptibility to sexual coercion was the norm rather than, than the exception due to socioeconomic conditions, limitations to lower wage jobs left women dependent on men for economic support and set up a condition for sexual compliance in and out of marriage. For that reason, some at the time around the the turn of the century were actually calling marriage legalized prostitution. There was a case where domestic servant Hester Vaughn brought major attention to this issue from from outspoken feminist leaders like Susan B. Anthony. And it was in the aftermath of the Civil War that Vaughn was impregnated by her employer. She was found several days later with her dead infant by her side, found guilty of infanticide and sentenced to death. So this situation brought rise to this public questioning of of gendered injustices that cumulatively sealed Vaughn's fate. So they were looking at gender and class restrictions that drove Vaughn to domestic service in the first place, and also her economic dependency that created sexual vulnerability. The courts put Vaughn, men, and society all on trial, leading to a larger political movement around women's exclusion from things like jury service and suffrage. This is what led to the suffrage movement. So our takeaway for workplace abuse legislation or the Dignity at Work Act is that we must look at how race, gender, and class influence our access to opportunity and our economic freedom. So next, next, let's look at the failure of rape law and how that increased collective action. So clearly, this high threshold of rape law failed to protect women from sexual predation. And it led to an escalated focus on law reform and collective action in the early 1900s. In fact, in 1908, uh, an episode fueled this collective action when two workers um, took a saloon keeper to court who fired a barmaid he impregnated. When they lost the case, these workers organized other workers to provide community support. It became this fusion of labor and feminist agendas to fight against the economic and social inferiority of women. Men treated women not according to the merit of their work, but rather as a sex without the right to really exist beyond their service to men. So our takeaway for the Dignity at Work Act is that as Just as rape law was inadequate to protect women from sexual coercion, anti-discrimination law is inadequate to protect women, non-white workers, and low-wage workers. Then let's look at sexual harassment as sex discrimination. So it wasn't until the 1970s that lawyers and activists mounted this huge social movement against the practice of sexual harassment, leading legislator leading to legislators recognizing for the first time women's right to work free of un- unwanted sexual advances. And it required this recharacterization of sexual harassment as sex discrimination as this key to the social movement. 
and, and getting this legislative change. So while Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 made discrimination legally actionable, there was a need to persuade legislators that sexual harassment is discrimination on the basis of sex and that there is a subordination of women to men influenced by sexual relations and economic dependency. So men required women to exchange sexual services for economic survival in both marriage and the market, which institutionalized this setup and put women's sex role over their merits as workers. In fact, work relationships paralleled home relationships with division of gender roles and women's economic dependency on men. So social, so sexual harassment really became this tool for subordination to reinforce the social hierarchy and inequality. So the patriarchy, dominance, entitlement, and exploitation. The question then became, how can you tell sexual harassment happened because one is a woman? The answer became, a man in her position would not be or was not treated the same way. Employers were not to treat women employees differently than they would treat male employees. So our our takeaway for the Dignity at Work Act is that we can recharacterize status-blind mistreatment as legal discrimination. So let's look at the court's response to all of this. So at first, courts position sexual harassment, even sexual assault, as a personal matter having nothing to do with discrimination or work. They believed sexual harassment was natural and, and inevitable and dismissed the issue on these two grounds. The first is that the system did not include power differentials based on sex. Now, we know that's not true, but that's the way they framed it to maintain the status quo. And the second ground is that discrimination required sorting all employees into two sex groups before determining discrimination on the basis of sex. If advances were refused, then sex is not the sole grounds of distinction or ground of of distinction. It was also this refusal of the advancement. So there's this additional criterion in selection, and this reasoning extended to things like pregnancy discrimination. Plaintiffs would have to show the practice affected all members of their group, not just their additional criterion, or they called it sex plus group. Examples of sex plus would be that they also denied sexual advances or that they were also pregnant. Of course, these grounds simply weakened the law and preserved this, these traditional gender roles in the workplace, and in society in general. The courts questioned Congress's intentions and decided their sex-plus approach would protect businesses' ability to do business, with some exceptions. In one early case, a judge decided that coerced sexual relations at work play a role in the perpetuation of gender inequality in a hostile work environment claim. Sex-plus disappeared after this early case. So we can see that, you know, the courts are trying to maintain the status quo, but slowly things are evolving. But federal courts still use sex plus in some ways. So for, as an example, employers may refuse to hire based on men seeming feminine or women seeming masculine. So the whole problem is that this approach loses the historical and social context. It misrecognizes the behavior and harm by removing the point that sexual harassment as any form of discrimination is abuse of power and a reinforcement of the social hierarchy. So courts often focused on a literal interpretation of the law versus focusing on the social backdrop against which it was created. 
with both race discrimination law and sex discrimination law, we focus on the physiological identity, not the sociological identity. While the courts progressed by considering sexual harassment to be a form of sex discrimination, they don't tie in other social circumstances, hierarchical position or economic situation, for example, or the behavior itself or the types of harm inflicted. The law failed to explain the basic context of the historical power dynamic minimizing women, that men coerce economically dependent women into sex to reinforce social hierarchies in both marriage and the market, that cumulatively made reasonable and natural a world in which women were on the bottom and men on the top. The law failed to explicitly call for those with privilege to give up some of it so women could have dignity. So our takeaway in this uh, area for the Dignity at Work Act is that general abuse of power has a discriminatory impact on non-privileged groups like women, non-white workers, and low-wage workers. White men continue to hold the majority of power positions in the U.S. workforce nearly 60 years after Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and also about 40 years after sexual harassment law. Um, so let's let's look at sort of this this uh, latest evolution of sexual harassment, which was mainly threats to the good old boys clubs. So since women did not want sexual advances, social change required switching the narrative from desire to power or an abuse of greater economic authority and resources to secure sexual access to women men wouldn't have without that power. That threat to power expanded beyond sexual advances when in the 1970s, women began to slowly break into traditionally male industries. Men used varied tactics to make women feel unwelcome enough to be kept down, also known as institutional subordination or sexualizing hierarchy, or or getting them to leave, which is institutional exclusion or gender-marking roles. And they did this with forms... um, of work that were traditionally gendered male. So they would do it through sexual attention and anecdotes, which falls, you know, very clearly under sexual harassment, but they also used non-sexual insults, gossip, jokes, all these different forms to denigrate, hurt, embarrass, show contempt for unfeminine or deviant behavior, put to put women in their place, um, to punish women for invading their territory to exclude women from their boys' clubs um, and to deprive them of authority and to undermine their competence. Um, The Supreme Court's sexual harassment, or their their first two sexual harassment decisions set the example for lower courts. So the first we'll look at is the 1986 Meritor Savings Bank versus Vinson. So in this classic... This was a classic sexual harassment scenario involving gendered work roles where a bank teller complained that shortly after she was hired, her supervisor invited her out to dinner and then suggested they go to a motel to have sexual relations. After initially resisting, she eventually surrendered. But in this case, the Supreme Court affirmed that sexual harassment involving a hostile work environment is actionable under Title VII. The second case 
is the, it happened in 1993, was the Harris versus Forklift Systems. And this was a new sexual harassment scenario involving non-gendered work role conventions. So a higher up of a company that rented equipment to construction companies continually made a, a female manager the target of such comments as you're a woman, what do you know? We need a man as the rental manager. And he also called her a dumbass woman. So, uh, quote, in front of others, he suggested that the two of them go to the Holiday Inn to negotiate Harris's raise. Hardy, who is the, the name of the, um, the perpetrator, occasionally asked Harris and other female employees to get coins from his front pants pocket. He threw objects on the ground in front of Harris and other women and asked them to pick the objects up. He made sexual innuendos about Harris's and other women's clothing, end quote. The behavior is is humiliation tactics to address his own anxiety about a threat to his male authority. And in this case, the Supreme Court decided that Title VII workplace harassment suits need not prove psychological injury. So here we have these two key elements, the hostile work environment being uh, an actionable and the... Um, the situation not requiring psychological proof of psychological injury. So basically, harassment became a tool for occupational segregation or the exclusion of women in the absence of the legal authority to fire them for the violation of gendered workspaces or roles. The goal was to basically restore the gendered order of work. And courts often fail to recognize this economically leveraged harassing conduct that is non-sexual as a communication of outsider outsider status. It's basically gender role policing. Um, in 1998, this whole issue is extended even further in the on on Cal versus Sundowner Offshore Services, where the Supreme Court recognized that sexual harassment need not be heterosexual cases or even motivated by sexual desire when they applied Title VII to harassment at work between members of the same sex. In this case, a group of men on an oil platform in the Gulf of Mexico harassed a male coworker with threats of rape and then mock performances of it. So employees are tasked with proving that conduct with, was both sexual in part and discrimination because of sex. And in this last case, it shows the difference between desire and hostility, though both aim to restore the gender traditional order in which men's power over women is secured. So the takeaway for the Dignity at Work Act is anyone who does not fit the white male norm is subject to abuse of power at work, and we need to address these inequalities. And we've already seen that law has already addressed the fact that um, you know, the, that a hostile work environment is actionable under law and that we don't have to prove psychological injury in order to have um, a claim or for someone to be made whole again. So we, we must consider all of those, these lessons from um, sexual harassment law. And we also, as the biggest one, must consider the larger social power dynamics expressed through classic and newer Harassment scenarios. In both situations, the behavior serves to remind women of their proper place in matters of work and sex, which is at the bottom. So 
you know, in some cases, the sex angle and the harassment angle cannot be separated. And we must focus on the impact of the work environment with attention to context in our social history. So we're left with some questions with this, with looking at the history of sexual harassment law. The first one is when supervisors, including women supervisors, engage in harassing behaviors that are non-sexual but still perpetuate toxic masculinity, why should targets not have legal recourse if the harms are the, are the same as with illegal discrimination? And secondly, why should intent matter when the impact is damaging according to a reasonable person? So that's what the Dignity at Work Act addresses. Um, you can actually go to dignityatworkact.org and find out more about um, what we're doing nationally in, in trying to get this legislation introduced and passed in all 50 states. We have active legislation in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, and we need a national movement. We need to, to recreate that collective action that happened with uh, advancing sexual harassment law. Thank you for listening to Screw the Hierarchy. If you feel like you need more help, I have a free guide to recovery steps at dignitytogether.org slash targets and a sign up for daily boosts through your inbox at the same place. All of the content in this podcast was created and edited by yours truly, Deb Falzoy, and the music you heard is from Kevin McLeod. All right, have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you on the next episode. Bye.